This is an ABC podcast. Malolili and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Aggie Debol, your host, and as always, we would like to acknowledge that our show comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Today on the show, a motion of no confidence in PNG's Prime Minister has hit a snag. At growing concern over Tonga's meth crises, and opposition political parties in PNG want to scrap the country's security pact with China. For more on these stories, simply stay tuned. I'm Aggie Debol, and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, in Papua New Guinea, a motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister was widely expected to be entertained in Parliament today, but it appears it's hit a snag. This motion was refiled to the Speaker of the House yesterday afternoon, so to just help us make sense of it all, we've got our PNG correspondent Tim Swanson joining us this morning. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Well, uh, as it continues, <laughs> the drama unfolds. <laughs> I thought we were going to get a motion of no confidence today. What's happened? Yeah, look, that's what uh, most people thought this week, but uh, it appears that the motion has needed to be refiled. So strap yourselves in. Let's talk the physics of the motion of no confidence before PNG Parliament. Um, effectively, as I understand it, the motion was originally filed on Tuesday. That's something that needed to be considered by the Parliamentary Business Committee on Wednesday. And if all was well with that motion, it would have been announced this morning to effectively kick off the vote of no confidence process, right? Which then provides for basically a week-long adjournment for Parliament while MPs consider their position, consider whether or not um, they would be voting for Mr Marape or, as we heard uh, just yesterday, the alternative Prime Minister of East Sepik Governor Alan Byrd, um, and then that would have taken place uh, next week. However, as I understand it, the private uh, business committee uh, found some minor issues with the motion that had been filed to them. Um, As a result, that motion has been rectified and then refiled to the Speaker. So as a result, we'll now need to wait a whole other week, effectively. Uh, That motion will go back to the private business committee next week on Wednesday, um, and if all is well with that document, uh, then uh, then the following day, so this is, if I'm doing my maths right, Thursday the 22nd, is when the vote of no confidence process would likely kick off. Um, but ultimately, that means that, uh, you know, that, that the likely parliament will continue to sit again next week or so, um, which is something that I'm sure the opposition are pretty happy about because of how they've been using parliament to raise questions against the government this week. Um, but yes, we were sort of all uh, all strapped in for the show uh, today, um, but it does appear that it's likely to be delayed for a week. That being said, though, Aggie, of course, PNG politics is PNG politics. We'll still have to monitor things pretty closely this morning and see what kind of announcement the uh, speaker makes today. Yeah, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, Tim, you spoke a little bit about uh, minor issues in the document. Are you aware of what those minor issues were? No, not at this stage. So hoping to get a little bit more clarity to do with this a little bit later. Of course, um, you know, these motions of no confidence, they can be complex. You know, there's all sorts of... um, 
you know, scrutiny that can be placed on these documents and these kinds of things as well. Uh, of course, you know, often it is in seen as an inherently political act, you know. So, uh, I mean, ultimately, um, it's, it's not a huge surprise, I guess, that this has been the result. Um, so while we don't know precisely, um, you know, what they what they saw about the document, um, we do know that it has been refiled to the Speaker. So most likely um, by Wednesday next week, that document will sort of pass, um, you know, the, the required uh, scrutiny from the Parliamentary uh, Business Committee next week. Now, with the delay, though, Tim, I mean, Mr Mlapa has already said he's quite confident he has the numbers to defeat the motion. Do you think that's still the case? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, the, the thing is, is, of course, the Prime Minister has a very strong uh, caucus with his own Pangu party as well. Um, and uh, also, you know, many of his uh, coalition colleagues um, have, you know, fairly publicly stated their support for Mr Marape. Um, you know, as far as the opposition numbers or so, we know that effectively 11 or so resigned um, from government sort of in the wake of those Wednesday the 10th uh, riots, um, which have joined, of course, you know, to sit with the opposition benches. Looking at Parliament, it does appear that there's a fairly stark contrast between the numbers in government and the numbers in opposition. Um, that being said, though, as uh, many people in PNG politics put it to me, that, uh, you know, one day can be a very long time. So once the kind of motion or vote of no confidence period is kicked off, it does start to become, you know, much more of a, a live contest and a live kind of issue um, as far as those numbers are concerned. That being said, I don't want to be pinned down on an early prediction <laughs> as far as how those numbers are tracking, I guess, for either particular candidate. And, you know, the way that these these camps can play out over the week of, of considering the motion of no confidence, look, anything can happen. And close spectators to PNG politics will know that that's the case with previous votes of no confidence too as to how these things occur. Mm. That being said, though, the last kind of successful motion of no confidence was basically all the way back into 1988. Um, you know, prime ministers have resigned, certainly in the face of motion of no confidences since, but the last kind of explicitly successful one, as far as the mechanism, was 1988 too. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll really have to just keep seeing. And you're right, Marape does sound, you know, quite confident at this stage. Just a note to add here as well, um, too, it does appear that the government is seeking effectively constitutional examination of the motion of no confidence. Um, now, uh, Prime Minister Marape says that that was something that was effectively agreed to at his um, his party, the Pangu Party um, convention, just at the weekend. Um, but certainly it raised a few eyebrows yesterday when uh, these court documents started uh, circulating through WhatsApp groups uh, yesterday here in Port Moresby. Um, so it appears that government's effectively seeking an interpretation um, of certain elements to do with the motion of no confidence. However, Mr Marape says that, look, this parliamentary process um, won't be affected by, you know, this Supreme Court reference. And he basically says, you know, bring it on, even though in his view he feels the challenge is frivolous. He does, uh, you know, say that he feels quite confident. But mind you, of course, you know, you spoke to Alan Bird, uh, ACP Governor Alan Bird yesterday, who's running as the alternate Prime Minister. Um, and of course, opposition do feel that uh, feel that their their challenge is, of course, quite important and necessary. 
Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, with Alan Bird, he is wanting more time to get more government MPs, you know, to cross the floor. So do you feel like that's likely to play out in his favour? Yeah, I mean, look, certainly, the, the, you know, more time um, could, could you know, be of benefit to them. Like I said, they, you know, it was a fairly fiery um, session in Parliament yesterday, um, especially with many questions um, to Prime Minister Marape and Connect PNG, um, you know, which is a, a major infrastructure and, um, you know, tra- a major infrastructure project here in PNG. Um, so, you know, the opposition will have more time in Parliament to effectively raise these kinds of questions and issues and, and of course, you know, hold private meetings and phone calls with MPs from the government side as well. One other thing that I think opposition MPs avoid by as well is they were potentially, uh, you know, concerned that, that Parliament could be adjourned for a considerable period of time at the end of this week. So kind of having this motion as a live issue generally would, would likely mean that Parliament will will have to go back and sit next week too. Um, so uh, I think obviously opposition MPs will, will largely be buoyed by this result. I'm not sure about sort of the uh, the international community though as to, you know, I think, um, you know, the motion of no confidence is something that, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's intense, you know, and, and heightened security here in Port Moresby as a result of kind of speculation with the motion of no confidence and the like too. So, um, I think it really depends on who you ask as to how happy they are <laughs> that uh, that things seem to be, you know, delayed or dragging out for another week. Mm. And so, as we know, Alan Bird seems to be the most uh, alternate uh, candidate to be Prime Minister. But have you had any word, any other WhatsApp conversations you've had to any other likely candidates for Prime Minister? Uh- Look, it appears at this stage he's he's well and truly locked in as the alternative prime minister. So once once you know his name has appeared on the form, um, which of course that it did on the Tuesday, as I, mean, I understand it, that his that his name is is still on the form <laughs> since it's been refiled. Um, he is the man who will be running against um, Prime Minister Marape. So once that motion goes through, um, uh, once that motion goes through uh, the parliamentary business committee, which could very likely be Wednesday next week. We have the week-long adjournment from Thursday. The question that is effectively put to the parliament is, right, do you prefer Prime Minister James Marape or are you going to vote for ACPIC Governor Alan Bird? So it's, uh, that, that will be the contest as it will play out. Um, and, you know, on, on that question as far as how public support is concerned as well, um, it does kind of remain to be seen. I mean, of course, Governor Bird has, um, I think many people do view him as having a very strong track record as being someone who's, um, you know, been very outspoken on on many issues, especially related to um, public spending. Um, of course, you know, he's, he's, he's not been one to shy away from these kinds of issues in Parliament um, as well. So I think he does attract fairly broad public support. Um, that being said, of course, though, he's, he's not a Highlander. And recently we've seen PNG politics sort of generally very much in the hands of, of, uh, of those from the Highlands too. So, look, it will be, of course, a very interesting contest and, and how that will play out. Um, but we'll know certainly much more about numbers kind of in that, in that week um, leading up right actually to the vote. And then, as we know how these votes can play out sometimes, your idea and expectation of numbers can completely flip in the hours just mm. before the vote as well. So <laughs> it's a uh, it's a fairly intense blood sport that many enjoy watching here in Panji. 
And also, I mean, you know, when we look back to January, you know, Black Wednesday with the riots, I know this is something that hangs very heavy over uh, Parliament at the moment. So, and you alluded a little bit to the police presence. Is the police on a higher state of alert during this period? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, generally when Parliament sits, they do increase their resources. But as far as I understand it, they've been doing quite a lot of roadblocks and checks and that kind of thing around the city in the last few days. Of course, their concern, um, and of course, you know, uh, around the time of Wednesday the 10th, we did hear from the Prime Minister that, you know, he was looking at any political influences or starting to examine what he felt were some of those links there to the violence. So, of course, for security forces and, and, and officials and authorities, it's effectively, you know, be, being on a higher state of alert um, is, is quite crucial sort of around this time because of, um, you know, the potential for unrest. And generally speaking, we know that during election times in Papua New Guinea, there's there's generally heightened um, violence along those party lines as well. So it's sort of unsurprising that we're seeing that that elevated uh, presence from authorities. That's something now that will likely carry through. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if if we do get this announcement from the Speaker this morning that things have been pushed back for another week. I wouldn't be surprised if we hear from um, authorities, um, you know, NCD um, uh, command, that they're keeping up their policing presence for the next fortnight or so. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it is, uh, it is certainly a little bit more of that tense atmosphere kind of has returned, um, uh, th- there is definitely greater numbers of, of police and, and security forces out on the ground at the moment. Yeah, definitely tense, but as always, we want to make sure that you are safe, Tim, so we do appreciate you always updating us uh, with what is happening there in PNG. So we appreciate your time this morning. You're very welcome. No worries. That, of course, is Tim Swanson, our ABC's PNG correspondent here on Pacific Beat. As we stay on the coverage of PNG, businesses affected by the recent riots in Port Moresby say they urgently need the PNG government to follow through on its promise of assistance. It's been just over a month since large mobs of people ran amok on the streets of the capital, looting and burning shops at will after police walked off the job over a pay dispute. In the days after, the government said it would provide relief to affected businesses, but just what form that help will take and how much will be offered is still to be decided. Liam Fox reports. The riots and looting could not have come at a worse time for Bahori Joku. I I have breast cancer. I'm a cancer survivor. I just had an operation um, in November last year. And I was hoping to go to Australia to have another scan, which is not available in Port Mosby. And uh, all of this has thrown everything into um, turmoil for me. Now she has no income to pay for medical treatment overseas after two buildings in the suburb of Sabama, one she owns and rents, the other she part owns that housed a supermarket, were looted and burned in last month's riots. On that day, January 10, Ms Joku watched on helplessly from her house nearby as people she knew joined in the senseless destruction of her livelihood. It seemed that I was the only one praying for the looting not to take place, and the entire community came out and looted. My family and I were um, totally outnumbered. We couldn't stop anything. And um, now, after everything's gone down and in ashes, and um, I see the community really in shock. 
She's surviving with help from her family, but it's not enough to get her back up on her feet. Since the looting, there was panic that there'd be no food, you know, coming around to Mosby and all that. So I kind of depleted my savings and um, I I have um, children who are supporting me, but um, it's really nothing compared to uh, what I was earning from rent from the buildings. In the days after the riots, the Prime Minister, James Marape, promised the government would help affected businesses. Ms Joku is desperately waiting for that help to arrive. We've been told that um, police or criminal um, investigators would come around. Um, we've seen, I've seen police vehicles come around, including today, but um, no one has come and talked to me. So um, basically there's no uh, response at all from the government for assistance. There's been a lot of conversation, there's been a lot of uh, discussions, there's been a lot of uh, uh, exchange of information since um, the 10th of January. Uh, What we need now is addition. Ian Tarutia is the president of the PNG Chamber of Commerce and Industry. In a joint submission to government, the Chamber and other business representative groups have put the damage bill at around 800 million kina. That's around 320 million Australian dollars. He says they're collectively asking for just under half of that to be released in cash payments immediately to affected businesses to keep them afloat while they rebuild. To help businesses uh, start the process of rebuild, physical property, purchase of stock, the keeping of staff who um, do not have jobs at the moment because their, their, their shops are, uh, are burned. It's a lot of money to hand out in cash, and in a country where corruption is widespread, such a scheme would be a ripe target for fraudsters. Mr Tarotia says the business groups are proposing a public-private partnership to oversee relief payments. There's got to be a valid a validation and a vetting process. So, you know, some of the things that uh, we want to, to, you know, to look at is, you know, are they tax compliant, for example? Superannuation and compliance is also uh, going to be looked at. But back in Sabama, Bahori Joku is worried that small businesses like hers will miss out. She can't even get insurance because she's been unable to secure titles for the land on which her buildings were located. The government's focus on compensation is with the big um, big guys like Brian Bell, City Pharmacy, Steamships, group of companies. Um, no one's looking at uh, the Asians or myself. We have to run around and look for assistance that's available or they say is available. Pacific Beat has sought comment from the city's governor, Powers Parkop. And that's Liam Fox reporting. While the mobs of young unemployed people involved in the devastating riots in Port Moresby a month ago has refocused attention on PNG's youth bulge. That's the large portion of the population aged under 25. PNG's National Research Institute is investigating possible options to deal with the issue, such as a mandatory youth service program. The institute says such a program would be the first in the Pacific region and will be modelled on similar projects overseas. Dubravka Volodya reports. In many countries where military service is compulsory, youths can apply for an exemption on ethical, religious or other grounds. This exemption qualifies them to instead help in a social or medical field. 
Researchers in PNG are working on a similar program where young people would be trained for a few weeks before being posted across the country to help in various fields. Majority of the people involved in the looting were younger people. And given the fact that now the government is seriously focusing on this program, it's a need for the country as a whole. Joseph Kaile is a researcher with the National Research Institute in PNG. If you look at the demographic side of it, with the current number of youths that we have, if we could convert them to become better citizens of the country, it might be beneficial. If we neglect them and let them be around like places, it is what you call a time bomb. While the team has worked on it for a while, he says it's become more urgent. They will be trained by the PNC Defence Force and once trained, uh, they'll be placed in uh, compulsory services. The intention of the one is to rehabilitate their mindset, to make them realise their purpose and the need to how best they can contribute to the country and then once they're ready in terms of their mindset, then they can be sent out into the work field. The youths would be placed in a number of areas, according to the country's needs and their own interests and skills. There's the Connect PNG program that is in currently in place at the moment. It needs volunteers to assist in ways that it could to fast-track the program. Then you have uh, uh, rural hospitals. But what do young people think? Port Moresby resident Nora says the country should find other ways to create opportunities for young people. We have other opportunities that could be driven into communities at local level where they can engage in um, social, medical, agricultural or even foster care programs that are more village and community-based other than coming through a defence a channel or a pathway. The idea is modelled after programs in some other countries. Singapore has a youth service model, as have a number of European and South American countries. Particularly in Guatemala, they are uh, sort of countries where there are, there are very limited sort of economic opportunities, and certainly Guatemala is primarily sort of agrarian. There are sort of similarities between those countries. Associate Professor Sinclair Dinan is a researcher at the ANU's Pacific Affairs Department. PNG, certainly more similarity between them than, for example, between PNG and Israel or, or Germany or Singapore. The population in PNG has been increasing over the years and Dr Sinclair says with young people making up a large part, it's a good idea to come up with solutions for employment opportunities. 50% of the population are under the age of, of 25. So you have what, what some people refer to as a youth bulge. You know, any sort of serious thinking around how to sort of address the lack of employment opportunities to young people is, is clearly important. But there are a number of hurdles. There is the issue of funding and then there are also, I guess, issues of, you know, what happens when people finish on the scheme? Where do they go? Do they simply go back to where they came from and, you know, face the same problem? So is it only a sort of temporary solution to a much, you know, kind of deeper problem? Researchers at the Institute say they will be working on the programme for the remainder of the year and will then present it to the government. And that's Dubrovka Volodya reporting.
Disasters are inevitable, but losing your life or home isn't. Learn what to do before, during, and after disaster in a program aimed at helping you keep safe. Pacific Prepared is all things disaster preparedness for the Pacific, with a team of reporters on the ground having conversations and bringing you the stories that could help you, your family, and community prepare for natural disasters. Pacific Prepared, Fridays from 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. And welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie the Bowl. Uh, We head to Thonga, where police have seized up to 15 kilograms of methamphetamine in the latest crackdown on hard drugs in the kingdom. Two people, a brother and sister, have been arrested, with police seizing the drugs valued at $8 million. Police say some of it was found at the National Reserve Bank, where one of the suspects worked. Joining us live to speak on the latest uh, police operation is the Commissioner of Police in Thonga, Shane McLennan. With that, I say Malo Commissioner, and thank you for joining us this morning. Malo LLA, and good morning, Aggie. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us this morning. And I know uh, you were probably limited to what you can share on this oper- um, investigation. But firstly, this was part of an operation uh, called Operation Feke. Can you maybe share how long had these two been investigated for? Um, not, not not that particular detail, Aggie, but what I can say is that uh, that our uh, Drug Enforcement Task Force here in Tonga Police and also our, um, our drug squad that's located within um, our central police district at Central Station here in Nukalofa, the capital, um, have been very active, uh, particularly, particularly the last 12 months where we've... Um, re-energised uh, our efforts and um, that's that's resulted in um, multiple arrests at uh, of street level dealing and Operation Feki is just one of the, the many operations that we've run through the drug squad over the last 12 months so um, on the weekend uh, was just the very uh, the beginning if you like of, of that particular operation. And uh, I know investigations are ongoing, uh, Commissioner, but uh, the reports have said one of the suspects is a bank official, but the National Reserve Bank of Tonga has been implicated in this as well. So I'm just wondering, um, because drugs were found there, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, Aggie. The, um, our, one of our offenders is a, a senior member uh, of the National Reserve Bank here in Tonga. And um, after the... A, uh, a little over five kilos was was seized on uh, late on Saturday night from the family home. On Sunday, uh, with the cooperation, uh, can I say, of the 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 governor uh, of the Reserve Bank, we uh, we gained access to the to the the person's office, and that's where we located another nine point nine kilos in his office. So that that's uh, that certainly is concerning that we have such a um, you know, a respected member of the community um, occupying uh, a senior level of employment at, at our National Reserve Bank. That's certainly concerning, but um, we're very grateful that we've uh, up until this point and, and obviously hopeful there will be ongoing uh, co- cooperation from uh, Reserve Bank officials. And of course, them being uh, arrested and charged, wondering though if you can share, what's the penalty or is there a sentencing that these two siblings could possibly face? Well, it's, yes, Aggie, the, the sentences range here. So we've got the Illicit Drugs Control Act and um, here in, in Tonga. 
And depending, it depends on the um, the type of drug, and also more importantly, um, the quantity of the drug that determines uh, the sentences at the end of the day. So, the sentences range, you know, generally anywhere from from possession matters of three years imprisonment, right up to uh, to mandatory life. That's really unfortunate to hear, and I'm wondering how the community has reacted to this. What, what, have you had any word from them? Um, lots of positive uh, feedback on the actions uh, taken by Tonga Police, and that's uh, that's gratifying, of course, um, and because we rely very heavily on community cooperation uh, with in all of the work that we do, but but uh, you know, in particular, drug investigations are sensitive at times, and uh, and can take uh, some time, uh, particularly when uh, when we do our very best to try and identify uh, the a network. So we're not just always uh, looking for the the lower level uh, street dealing offenders. We you know, those offenders get their drugs from from someone else, and those people get their drugs from someone else. So our whole aim is to to detect, deter and disrupt and that's all about identifying those uh, those networks and so um, we're very grateful uh, for the information that comes our way from the community and uh, most of that uh, are just anonymous anonymous tip-offs from concerned members of the community and, and we act on all information that we get so we're very, very grateful for that. Yeah and I know this is not the first radio show for anyone who's obviously been dealing drugs there in the kingdom, but, you know, there have been words, Thonga has a drug crisis, and it doesn't seem or even appear to be slowing down, judging by the recent cases. Uh, and you spoke a little bit there about your efforts to detect, deter and disrupt, but how else are the police tackling this issue? Um Multiple ways, Aggie, and uh, it all starts, as I as I mentioned, with uh, with community cooperation. We we certainly have a, a drug problem here uh, in Tonga. You know, there's not many communities around uh, that that could say that they don't have a, a, a drug problem. To be honest, um, I don't use the term uh, a crisis. I think that's um, that's not what uh, what we have here. But we certainly have a drug problem, and and we are addressing that. Um, and the government uh, of Tonga is is very supportive. Um, the prime minister chairs the uh, the illicit drugs response fund um, and there's a, a committee process within that and the the, uh, the government's been very generous over the last uh, couple of years with allocating um, some some sizable money and I'm talking in the millions of, of panga each year towards that that drug fund and what it does is it allows all um, ministries within Tonga but also NGOs and others to to apply for specific funds to address different uh, different parts of of the drug problem, so that's uh, that's going very well, um, and we're very grateful to the to the prime minister and the government for that. And and you know a lot of this stems back to um, to twenty twenty one. It was actually before my time. I've uh, been here since early twenty twenty two, but um, um, His Majesty King Tupo the Six. Um, through uh, through his initiative and, and the government of the day, there was a national uh, drug symposium, and and out of that came a whole new effort of of targeting drugs uh, within within the kingdom. So that work, there's been some great work done, um, and that work is ongoing. 
Commissioner, do you feel, though, it's fair to say, though, for a, for a country of Tonga's size, uh, is meth maybe an oversized problem compared to maybe other Pacific countries? We are certainly concerned with uh, with the the level of meth here for the size of the of our of our communities um, uh, uh, right across the kingdom. Um, we're only a small population, uh, you know, around about one hundred and ten thousand uh, throughout the kingdom. So meth certainly uh, is a concern for us, and um, the seizures over last weekend of you know fifteen point six kilo uh, for. For a country our size and with our population, that certainly is a is a major concern for us. And as I'm sure the majority of people know, these illicit drugs have caused quite a bit of harm uh, with the community. I suppose it can be related to the rise in youth crime, even family harm, even to the point of death. Uh, who is the police actually holding account or responsibility for it to even just get into the country in the first place? Well, Aggie, you know, all drugs uh, cause problems, and it's not just meth. It's it's all uh, all illicit drugs, and um, and that starts, you know, the lower levels with uh, with marijuana, and 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 goes up from there, of course. And um, and you're right, you know, family harm comes from this, but we also have you know the drug related crimes of um, you know breaking enters and and stealing, um, you know, the occasional robbery. We're we're grateful that uh, we don't have a, a high level of that type of, of crime here in, in Tonga. And generally, the, the crime rate here um, is low in comparison to many other uh, Pacific countries, so we're grateful for that. And, and we, uh, we, when we just continue to, to work um, on the information that we receive and also on the, uh, our own police intelligence that we're able to, uh, to garner uh, from various, uh, various avenues. We also um, work um, in cooperation with our um, Pacific uh, colleagues. So, so through the, um, the Pacific Island Chiefs of Police, um, we have 22 member countries all signed up to the, uh, the PICP. Tonga, uh, through myself, is currently the chair, and we will host the PICP conference uh, this year in, uh, in September. And within that, that uh, body, that forum, we have a number of programs of work, and one of those is the, um, the PTCCC, so the Pacific Transnational Crime Coordination Centre, which is based uh, up in Apia in Samoa. Um, and that PTCCC controls a whole um, network of intelligence uh, through our transnational crime units. So there's a lot of work going on in the background to to get on top of the the drug problem um, and to identify those transnational organised crime networks. Mm. At any point, do you feel though that the police force there uh, is well resourced to deal with this issue? Is there uh, sometimes you often think maybe you need help from Australia? Well, I'm I'm very grateful here in Tonga that we do have uh, help from uh, from Australia through the Australian Federal Police. We have the the, the Tonga Australia Policing Partnership, um, and uh, we have three AFP officers here in country uh, working in various areas. I'm also very grateful to New Zealand Police. We have a, a reciprocal arrangement with uh, with uh, New Zealand through the Tonga New Zealand Policing Program, and we have four New Zealand Police officers here again working across various. Um, areas and various crime types. So um, we're very grateful for that support. You know, we'll always ask for more, of course, um, but we're also grateful. You know, the government of Tonga uh, provides us well. You know, we can always do with more, but um, we'll do the best we can do with what we've got.
And with that, how do you think Donga sort of ended up in this current situation? Well, I mean, if you look at uh, if you look a map at a map of the uh, of the Pacific, and uh, if you had a, a criminal mind and you were looking to move drugs, and most of the the drugs, you know, the illicit drugs, particularly meth and cocaine, um, come from the Americas, um, and Tonga is a very strategically located, um, fairly central in the Pacific. So, in, if you were moving, uh, if you were a criminal and you wanted to move drugs across the Pacific, uh, Tonga is a, is a provides a perfect geographical um, location for for stop offs and for transits and and so forth. So, I suppose we're we're a, uh, a bit of a victim of, um, of the beautiful place that we live out out here in the Pacific. Um, but and that's why uh, our border security is so important, and why we're always looking to work uh, um, better in partnership with our border security agencies, such as uh, the Tonga Customs um, and Tonga Immigration, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And look, we thank you for the work that you are doing there, Commissioner, and we just appreciate your time this morning. Always happy to uh, to have a chat, Aggie, and uh, and thank you and uh, all the best to your listeners. Thank you very much. That, of course, is Commissioner of Police in Donga, Shane McLennan. Up next, it's News Rep producer Mackenzie Smith. All right, let's head around the region. We've got our news rapper this morning, uh, brought to us by producer Mackenzie Smith. Uh, good morning, sir. Kia ora, Aggie. All right, let's get straight into it. Of course, uh, Gava dieback disease is threatening crops in Fiji. Let us know. It is. The, the Fiji Times reports the, the disease, which essentially it spreads black soft rot on the, on the stems of the kava plant, is becoming more widespread in Fiji. So the paper spoke to one farmer in Namosi who had more than 50 plants affected, and that's sparked a talanoa in the area with the Minister for Rural and Maritime Development. So right now there's no cure for kava dieback disease, but officials say a common misconception is that the plant can be uprooted and the suckers then safely replanted, but that leads to the disease spreading to new plants. Instead, they are recommending the entire plant be uprooted and burned or buried. And officials warn that carver dieback can also be spread through the use of contaminated farming tools. Wow, okay, that's interesting. That's the first time I've ever heard of that. Um, scientists have found that the world's coral reefs are nearly 25% larger than previously thought. How did they work that out? Yeah, so this is uh, some a group of researchers at the University of Queensland, and and they say that previous previous data sets on coral reefs came from a whole range of different sources. So it's really hard to know for sure uh, where coral reefs were. Uh, they were able to build a, a single set using satellite imagery, machine learning, and drawing on the observations of, of hundreds of people working and living near reefs around the world. And they say that they were effectively able to find an extra 64,000 square kilometres of shallow coral reefs that hadn't been um, accounted for. So the, the shallow coral reefs are, are those zero to um, up to 20 metres deep. Uh, and that, that brings the, the, the total reefs around the world of to 348,000 square kilometres, 
uh, and the researchers say that the maps they've made are already being put to use by reef conservation groups around the world. Nice, interesting. Uh, finally, this one's, well, polystyrene containers are set to disappear from American Samoa. I know this is something that a lot of us specific people use. Yeah, a, a, a staple for sure, but but this is kind of part of a, a regional effort. American Samoa uh, isn't, isn't, isn't the first to do this, but um, just just this week, uh, Samoan News reports that Governor Lemanomanga signed the polystyrene foam container ban into law, uh, meaning that in 60 days it will be illegal to import or sell the containers in the country. After that, fines for their use will range from $300 to $5,000. Uh, as, as I said, there's, there's a, a regional pushback against this. It's thought to be a human carcinogen uh, and is non-biodegradable. Other countries that have banned its use include Fiji, the Federated States of Micronesia, Marshall Islands, New Zealand, Samoa and Vanuatu. Oh, appreciate you bringing us those stories around the region. Uh, Mackenzie, thank you for doing our news wrap this morning. Thanks so much. No worries. Catch all the action of the 2024 NRL All-Stars, Indigenous versus Maori. He's over the halfway line, 20, 10, just the gate. Kicking off this Friday with the women's game at 4pm and then the men do battle from 6.30 PNG time. Game, set, bingo. Live rugby league coverage. NRL All-Stars, Indigenous versus Maori on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. It's Eggie Dupol here, your host for Pacific Beat. While we head to the Solomon Islands, where opposition politicians are vowing to make public or even scrap a deeply contentious security pact with China if they manage to oust Prime Minister Manasi Songovare when the Pacific Island nation goes to the polls in April. But Mr Songovare has unveiled the election platform for his own political coalition, vowing to further consolidate ties with Beijing under a look north of foreign policy. Here's Foreign Affairs report. Stephen In Solomon Islands, campaign rallies echo with song and with prayer, with even political manifestos receiving a blessing. We thank you for the many blessings. We thank you for the words, the message that... But opposition figure Matthew Wale is striking a more combative tone. We have an economy where Solomon Islanders are increasingly marginalised. We have an economy that takes the natural resources from Solomon Islanders to make foreigners rich. Mr Wale and his coalition partners are trying to remove Manasseh Sogavare, the country's dominant political figure. Mr Sogavare has forged close ties with China, signing a deeply contentious security pact with Beijing, which has alarmed Australia. But Mr Wale and his partners say Mr Sogavare has neglected critical health and education services while allowing foreign logging companies to keep on plundering forests in Solomon Islands. We have a government that is not controlled by Solomon Islanders. It is a government made up of Solomon Islanders, all right, but it is not controlled by Solomon Islanders. A government that receives money to make sure that the status quo continues. Manasseh Sogavare sees it differently. He's spruiking the massive investments China's made into Solomon Islands, including mobile towers, new roads and a huge stadium for last year's Pacific Games. Despite the challenges by the COVID-19 pandemic and the violent campaigns that led to the carnage in Oniara, 
our party still delivered many transformative outcomes. Mr Wale has accused Mr Sogavare of kissing China's feet and is promising to make the contentious security pact with China public. We need to be talking on our protecting and advancing our own national interests. Not kowtowing, not bowing down like beggars with no respect. But unlike some other opposition figures, he's not committing to dumping the pact. And in the end, his position may not matter much. While politics in Solomon Islands is famously quicksilver, Dr Graham Smith from the Australian National University says Mr Sogavare could well secure an unprecedented second consecutive term. As far as I'm aware, he would be the first um, man to manage that in the Solomon Islands Um, because these coalitions are immensely unpredictable and shifting. It is possible, um, if not likely, that he will be the first to do so because he has a war chest behind him that I think his um, predecessors did not have. A milestone which would be very unlikely to be celebrated in Canberra. And that's ABC's foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jidgets. Well, as we have heard, opposition political parties want to scrap the contentious security pact with China as they head to the polls in the country's upcoming elections. So joining us now to discuss these latest developments is our reporter on the ground in Honiara, Chris Narita Almanu Leong with that. I say good morning. Good for the morning, Aggie. <laughs> Appreciate your time this morning. Hey, look, firstly, the most important question I think everyone wants to ask is, do we actually have an official date for the election yet? Well, at this stage, unofficial date, uh, but we've heard from the chief electoral officer, Jasper Anisi, who says that the, we're expecting the governor general to um, announce the dates uh, next, uh, well, that's on February 20th, and that's when we will be gazetted. Unofficially, though, it's on April 17th, but either way, Aggie, many Solomon Islanders have waited, you know, an additional seven months to cast their vote after the, you know, the parliament extended the, the lifespan from four to five years. Yeah. And, and do you, are you aware, Chrissy, of how many parties have registered so far? Um, and is there a deadline then for them? Well, uh, so far there are 13 parties that we know of. So, uh, just to give a little bit of context, there are 50 members elected into the Solomon Islands um, Parliament at a four-year term in single-seat constituencies. Uh, the Solomon Islands has a multi-party system, which um, uh, means that multiple parties have the capacity to you know, either gain control of government office separately or as a coalition. What we've seen the past years is as a coalition uh, forming the government. And so at this stage, we do know that there are 13 political parties um for the upcoming elections. And with the community, I'm wondering, I mean, uh, are people in Solomon Islands starting to pay attention, you know, to these political parties and their policies now that the election is getting closer? Oh, yes. Uh, There has been a little bit more hype than there was last year, you know, particularly with these political parties launching their manifestos um, in the in the past week and we're expecting more of that in the weeks ahead. But it's common for voters also here in Solomon Islands to, you know, to vote political parties. What we've seen in the past parliament um, uh, parliament sittings is that traditional and community ties can play a quite a huge role in voting decisions. And although political parties 
parties are have been you know in, in part of uh, the 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 system um they, are, they and we we do know that you know policies shape the governance and policies of any country uh but you know, there's 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 more people, there's more awareness now on um on political parties and all the better as as we head into towards the um, the elections. And as they've released their um, manifestos, Chrissy, uh, has there been any sort of surprises you've seen? Oh uh, well, we can expect a lot of surprises. I think when it comes to politics, so yeah. far we've only seen well, I've only seen. Three um, manifestos from the thirteen political parties. Um, I would say that, uh, uh, in terms of you know, in terms of, of surprises, there's been one. Uh, well, the one that um, <clears throat> there's a coalition that was just formed. That's between um, the uh, Solomon Islands Democratic Party, led by former opposition leader Matthew Wale, and the Democratic Alliance Party that was led by former Prime Minister Rick Ho. And together they've um, formed a care coalition. Um, but they would also need 26 seats from the 50 to form the next government. And that, of course, won't come easy uh, against caretaker Prime Minister Sogavari's, Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavari's Our Party, who had their uh, launch last week also. And the Our Party, are banking on their legacy of um, forming a stable government in the last parliament, uh, despite you know COVID nineteen and as well as you know hosting the Pacific Games. So that and other parties, you know, it won't come easy for them. But uh, I guess that that that's one of the uh, surprises. Mm. And as much as uh, you know, they're banking on having a solid government. It really does come down to maybe some of the conversations of the community, because what are the main issues people are wanting political parties to address from the conversations you've had? Yes, I've spoken to um, you know many voters, uh, those who are looking forward to vote this year, and it's simple, Aggie. What people, uh, what many Solomon Islanders want is um, you know running water. They want low cost of electricity. Uh, they want to be able to go to hospitals and to have. Um, Panadol stocked up. Uh, they want the basic medications to be there for them. Um, they want quality education, which could also mean, you know, free education. And um, that's among the many things that, you know, voters want. But of course, looking at these manifestos, um, manifestos, there are ambitious policies that some of these political parties have. And then you look at the needs of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to talk about some of the, you know, like the former Premier of Malaita. We've got Daniel Sudani, you know, he's formed the U4C party. Uh, anything about the main policies of his party you'd like to share? Mm, Daniel Sudani, um, if I can recall, he was the Premier of Malaita province, one of the most populous provinces in the country. Uh, he was the Premier from 2019 to early 2023 when he was voted out in a no-confidence vote. But Daniel Suidani has long been a critic of China's relationship with Solomon Islands, ever since Solomon Islands established diplomatic relations with China. Daniel Suidani was also seen as a thorn in the former uh, DCGA-led government um, uh, that Prime Minister Sogavari had led. And there were tensions back then between the national government and Malaita. So this time around, Aggie, Suidani is not back at is back uh, not as the premier but as the president for the UMI for Change Party or the uh, better known as U4C and it's a new party this time around and one of the policies that actually stood out is one that's dedicated to gender balance in youth and I think that popped up because you know of the inclusive 
inclusivity. But of course, that's something that I haven't seen in the other manifestos that I've been reading through. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to also see not only U4C's one, but the other other uh party policies that will come up um, in the coming weeks. And it is. We will keep our eyes and ears on this. Uh, Looking forward to uh, those elections in April, but we appreciate your time this morning, Chrissy. Thank you, Tomas Agi. No worries. That, of course, is our reporter in Honiara, Chris Narita Almanu Leong. That pretty much brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Time to take a look back at our main story in PNG, where a motion of no confidence in Prime Minister uh, is expected to was expected in Parliament today. But our correspondent Tim Swanson explains it's been delayed after hitting a snag. So while we don't know precisely, you know what they what they saw about the document, we do know that it has been refiled to the Speaker. So most likely by Wednesday next week, that document will sort of pass the required uh, scrutiny from the Parliamentary uh, Business Committee next week. Uh, head to abc.net.au for more stories on our show. Tomorrow is your sports edition with Richard Ewart at 6am PNG time. Stay tuned. Next is news. Coming up after that, it is Nisha Daily. Until then, I am Aggie the Bowl and this is Pacific Beat. Pacific Beat.